Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Tucked away in the far eastern Himalaya, Bhutan is arguably the last bastion of the Tibetan Buddhist culture and religion in its truest form. Despite embracing 20th century life and opening up to tourism in the late 70s, it's managed to minimise the effect of outside influences, and the country is virtually untouched in terms of its environment, religion, architecture and lifestyle. The new democratic government and the monarch guard Bhutan's culture and national identity fiercely. Judy Tenzing has a history with a deep passion for South Asia. She has a degree in South Asian history, as well as postgraduate qualifications in secondary teaching. Judy has been leading tours to South Asia for over three decades now. She joins us today to discuss Bhutan, a country which she describes as a modern Shangri-La. Lovely to see you, Judy. Thank you. Tell us about Bhutan. When did you first go there? Ah, Bhutan. Um, I first went there. It was quite difficult to get in in the early days. It only opened up for tourism in the 1970s. And in the early 80s, I was working in Nepal and India as a, a mountain guide. And I had uh, an opportunity to go there as a private guest in 1983. And I remember flying in. It's quite a spectacular flight into Bhutan because it's secluded way up in the eastern Himalaya. And you have to, to get in there, you actually have to fly through this very narrow gap in the mountains. You can literally sort of put your hands out and touch either side. I remember landing and getting off the plane and there was just silence. You couldn't hear anything. And there was this beautiful broad green valley and these ancient 16th, 17th century fortress monasteries up on the the hillside sort of overlooking the valley. I I knew Bhutan was going to be beautiful, um, but I had no idea it was going to be quite as as, uh, spectacular as it was. It was still very undeveloped at that stage. There were um, the hotels, such as they were, were actually guest houses that had been built for the king's grandfather, that had been built for his coronation in 1974. And they were the only places that you were allowed to stay. And they were not even down in the valley. They were up on the hillsides because they wanted to, they didn't really want too much interaction between foreigners and the locals. So it was a, it was an extraordinary experience. The forests were completely intact, unspoilt. The, the, the water in the river that flew through the main, uh, the main valley of Paro where the, where the flights land was, you know, glacial, crystal clear water. And there were you know, rice fields and rhododendrons. And I mean, it really was just extraordinary. And I have to say, whilst Bhutan has grown a lot, and of course, now there are hotels in, in Paro and in Timpu, the capital, and um, there's now a two-lane road that goes between the airport and uh, and the capital, it really hasn't changed all that much. The The landscape hasn't changed that much. There is still um, they're fiercely protective of their culture. All of their their forts and their monasteries are beautifully maintained, very strict still about the number of tourists who come in, um, and they do that by charging a fairly hefty daily rate. That does keep the numbers down. And it really is, in many ways, 
the same as it was in in the early 80s when I went in there, as it, just as beautiful. There are whole valleys in Bhutan full of juniper trees and, and rhododendrons, which we know as bushes, they're trees. Hemlock, whole valleys full of hemlock trees. I, I mean, I've never seen that anywhere else in the world. And a whole you know, 180 degrees of, of Himalayan mountains that have never been climbed and never will be because climbing is banned in Bhutan. They don't want people coming in there climbing. They don't want their mountains disturbed. They're very strict with the protocols in the monasteries, etc. It's um, They're a, a unique race of people and they've, um, they've made the transition from monarchy to democracy quite well. And whilst the modern world is creeping in there, they're trying desperately to control it and, and to maintain the things that are important to them. So if you went into a cafe, it would feel quite modern, would it? And Some. And you have internet? Yes. Oh, there's, a, there's a couple of lovely cafes that, you know, do brownies and lattes and, you know, the whole thing. Um, but similarly, you can go two doors up and go into a cafe and have a Tibetan butter tea. So, you know, that's all still there. The Western influence there is not evident. You you need to know where the cafes are. And most in most places, they're traditional sort of restaurants, traditional people wear traditional dress in the street. Um, you can't build a modern sort of chrome and glass building in Bhutan. You're not allowed. You have to build traditional style. It has to be painted in traditional style, which is incredibly beautiful with all these hand-carved eaves and all this sort of Buddhist iconography everywhere. And and that's all by law. And that is, you know, to try and hold on what is uniquely, hold on to what is uniquely Bhutanese. That must be quite a challenge because they're sort of wedged between India oh. and China, aren't they? It's such strong cultural influences, you'd have thought. They are. Um, I guess they've always leaned towards India and, and India, to its credit, India fundamentally controls Bhutan's foreign policy. But for the most part, they just leave them to their own devices. They, they, they help them. They put a lot of money into Bhutan, uh, but there's never been any really real attempt to sort of develop an Indian culture there. They they leave the Bhutanese to their own devices. China, of course, has eyes on Bhutan for its forests and its hydroelectricity, and there have been a couple of instances over the years where the Chinese have sort of started to very quietly slide in over the northern border. But when that has happened. The Indian Army has gone in there in a very big way and sort of told them to get back behind the line. Um, there isn't actually a line, and that's part of the problems when the British left that whole northern uh, part of the subcontinent was never clearly delineated, and that's caused all sorts of problems in all sorts of places. But um, it is a problem in Bhutan as well. But for the most part, how long it can last, I really don't know. I just am eternally grateful I've been able to see it and spend a lot of time there in my lifetime because there is nowhere else like it. It's unique, mm. beautiful. They have their forest cover there by law is protected. It cannot drop below 60%. So at the moment it's sitting around 70. They understand that the population's growing, not much, the population's growing. I think when I first went there in the, in the, the uh, early 80s, the population was around 700,000 and now it's 800,000. Yeah, it's not a not it's a huge not a growth, people, is no, it? No, 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 no. So they are, but but they, you know, they are very very strict. You have to get permission to cut down a tree. You have to get permission. You can't fish in the rivers. Um, you can't grow crops. You know, wherever you like, everything is controlled. 
they actually have a Department of Gross National Happiness. I mean, it's an actual department. It has its own building and staff. And a friend of mine's daughter did work experience there, which made me laugh. Um, but the Department of Gross National Happiness is like the final checkpoint for any laws that are passed. And if they don't get through the scrutiny of that department, they do not go into law. And they have a very sort of strict formula that it has to be good for Bhutan's economy. It has to be good for people in general as a society. Uh, It has to be environmentally sound. There's this sort of a nine-point classification process that it has to go through. And if it doesn't meet those requirements, then that's it. They have to go back to the drawing board and, and fix it. And People sort of think, oh, it's just a bit of a cliche, this gross, gross national happiness thing. It actually isn't. It's actually government policy, which is extraordinary, I think. It is extraordinary. We need yeah. more of it, yeah, I we, think. We really, we could use one here. <laughs> we could. So the country's carbon negative, is that it right? Is. Yeah, it, it was uh, up until last year carbon neutral and now it's carbon negative, which means it is it eliminates more CO2 emissions than it creates. So um, a lot more, in fact. And that's, of course, got a great deal to do with uh, the forest cover, dense forest over most of Bhutan, and the fact that they don't have any major industry as well. But, of course, you know, they they have environmental issues with their neighbours in India down on the plain. So there are all sorts of other things there. But, yes, they're, and they're very proud of that fact. How long they can hold on to that is another thing. Yeah, they're working on it. Most of their um, their electricity is hydro-generated. So um, they they use very little coal-fired uh, power at all. And it would be fair to say that, you know, a lot of their population is rural, so they don't have electricity at all. Um, but certainly in the cities, Timpu is now quite a big town. That's the capital. But all of their power comes from a, a new hydro plant further up upriver. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty cluey. Mm. But they... People love Bhutan so much. They get a lot of international experts. Everybody wants to go and help the Bhutanese, you know, and they, they're not short of sound advice from abroad. Japan in particular is, and the Swiss, very, very fond of the Bhutanese, and they um, they invest a lot of time and money and expertise there, which is lovely. It is lovely. Mm. So how much power does the monarch have? None. None? Well, constitutionally, No. The current king abdicated in, well, he announced it in 2005. He abdicated in 2006 in favour of his son, um, Jigme Kessar, who was the current king. He's young, he's 32, I think. And then they transitioned from then to the first elections, which were held in 2008. So it is a full, it's a constitutional monarchy. Right. Um, he's a figurehead only. However, I have yet to meet a Bhutanese who doesn't look to the king for leadership and guidance. You know, they'll say, the government will say, we're not going to use plastic bags, and everyone will go, oh, okay, we're not going to use plastic bags, and they use plastic bags. The king will then say, you all have to stop using them. That's it. It's stopped. So he has a very sort of paternal attitude towards them. He's always out and about. He goes off trekking in the mountains to villages and, It's a very sort of hands-on approach. The king who abdicated, the current king's father, he was up until last year also still very active in the community, but he has withdrawn from public life now and he has sort of gone into the spiritual phase of his life. So his son is now old enough 
he feels to um, to handle the reins alone, and that's what's going on. But they absolutely worship him. In fact, I was reading an article this morning where they had one case of uh, COVID nineteen in Bhutan that was an American tourist, and the king, well, in the interests of of protecting Bhutan, but also in the interests of this poor gentleman who was very ill, organized a private jet to take him home. It doesn't happen everywhere. It doesn't. So they only had one case and they got rid of it, but they got rid of it with style. With style, but very quickly. <laughs> yes, very quickly. So um, how did um, Buddhism remain so strong there? Um, well, Buddhism in Bhutan came from Tibet originally. The original person who brought this particular kind of, there are varying branches of Buddhism and um, the leader who brought this particular branch of Buddhism was originally ostracised from his monastery in Tibet because he didn't have the right brand of Buddhism at that time. So he brought the um, the Drukpa people, the Drukpa branch of, of Buddhism into Bhutan. And I think because of its isolation um, and because it was able to fend off numerous attacks by the Tibetans over the centuries, I think really that that led them to be able to just lead this sort of cocooned little existence in these series of valleys. And it really up until um, the early 20th century, it wasn't even a united kingdom. The modern monarchy didn't start until 1908. So up until then, each valley in Bhutan had its own leader, its own monastic and administrative leader, and, and never the twain shall meet. They were often at war with each other. But, of course, what that did was all these isolated little communities were able to maintain their traditions, and, and that's why Bhutan remained unchanged for so long. Of course, all these monasteries that were were built, they're monastery fortresses. So there's always been that link between the military, the administration and the monastic, and there still is. So, you know, it's just been such an inextricable part of their life. And it's still very much, they're a very superstitious people. They've um, inherited a lot of the old animus traditions of Tibet as well. So um, they have some very strange customs there. They, they're very paranoid about ghosts and bad spirits and, you know, ritual has to be sustained. Otherwise it's, it's very dangerous if you don't do all the right things. And it's quite fascinating, harmless, but fascinating. So have you taken many tours there? Oh, many, 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 yeah. Usually, I usually go in November each year. I went last November. No, I've taken a, a lot of tours there. In the early days, I used to do a lot of walking there, so trekking incredibly hard when you get out into the mountains. It's very, very steep. Uh, but these days I do mainly historical, cultural-type tours, so no high altitude, no no major just walking, you know, sightseeing, walking really. But, yeah, I do quite a lot of that, and we always try to time it. To, they have fabulous festivals there where everybody gets dressed up and, the textiles in Bhutan are to die for, all the hand-woven. Um, the women wear these hand-woven um, wrap-around dresses called kiras and they're, they're made on hand looms and they're, they're, just, they're absolutely exquisite. And, of course, if you go on a festival day, then they're all dressed up to the nines and it's fabulous. So, I, you know, I try and sort of time it around that so everybody gets to see it. But And, the, you know, the, um, the royal family are patrons of the arts, the painting, textile weaving. So there's, this, um, you know, there's that old tradition as well of keeping these arts alive by the royals, A, putting money, in, money into it, but more importantly, giving it value. So how long do you think they might keep the outside world out? 
Oh, look, I really don't know. They they have internet now. They have TV. They a lot of the young Bhutanese, the wealthier Bhutanese, go abroad to be educated. Um, there's quite a few of them at universities here in Australia. I don't know. I really don't know. My I guess my major concern is is China. China has built a road up to the border from the north, and I don't know. You know, there's only one reason you build a a road up to a place in the middle of ice and snow. That would be a concern, although I think the world reaction to that would be fairly strong. Who knows? These are things that uh, that we can't predict. I'm I'm just so glad I got to see it. It's there is nowhere else like it. it it's my favourite place in the world, easily, easily. Well, let's hope it survives for a lot longer the way it is. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks, Judy. You're welcome. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.